Chapter 6 Lessons in Pride and Humility As we saw in past chapters, the corporate churches have gone to shocking lengths and shed rivers of blood in a desperate attempt to keep true biblical understanding from their laity. In observing those church fruits or actions, one can only deduce there is something extremely valuable that someone or something very powerful has been purposely denying the common people. That said, it only makes sense we look for ourselves into those scriptures to see just what they've been so desperate to keep from us. With that in mind, an important scripture offering great insight into the problem of understanding is found in the book of Hosea, in chapter 4 and verse 6, where it states, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Of course, that knowledge is spiritual knowledge. That's quite a statement, but it's the essence of the overarching problem. Earlier chapters noted some of the conspiracies by the corporate churches and world's religions in denying that saving knowledge, beginning with the forbidding of new translations, at least until the 17th century. At the same time, they demonized legitimate books of scripture while authorizing faulty translations. On top of that, they only feed their laity private interpretations of the pittance of that remaining scripture they give. Consequently, you will notice the following scripture chapters are very heavily laden with Bible scripture, primarily quoting the New King James Version, with some translation corrections. The point is to unveil that astoundingly important scriptural and spiritual understanding. Also, I've endeavored to do something very unorthodox in the churches, which is to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves, translation problems notwithstanding. <clears throat> 2 Peter 1.20 states, Know this first, that no prophecy that is literally expounding of Scripture is of any private interpretation. How amazing! Virtually all the Bible-based churches found their doctrines upon private interpretation in lieu of, the, of allowing the Scriptures to speak for themselves. But even if we allow the Scriptures to speak what is written, it's imperative all the Scriptures on a subject be brought together as one package. And that includes the Old as well as the New Testament. In bringing all the scriptures together into one package, the few scriptures seemingly contradictory become obvious. Only by using this process, of course with supernatural help, can the whole truth be uncovered. At risk of being redundant, remember those in the first century were being instructed from the Old Testament, not the New. Again, the New Testament was not assembled and incorporated into the canon until the 4th century CE. The hundreds of quotes from the Old Testament by the Messiah and Apostles are proof of that fact. In allowing the scriptures to speak for themselves, we must also remember Yahweh, the Creator, does not and has not changed. What that means is everything in the New Testament must agree with the Old. The Messiah, that is the Hebrew Yeshua, made that thought clear when he said, Think not that I have come to destroy or do away with the law, that is the Torah, but to fulfill, which means to fill in the details or complete. Another way to view the Messiah's statement is he came to bring back lost knowledge. For example, in his prayer in John 17, uh, it reveals that Israel had lost or forgotten their God's name, let alone most of the Torah. Here again, it's good to refresh our memories with Hosea 4.6, quoted earlier, where it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests for me. That scripture sums up virtually everything we've reviewed to this point.
The word priests also applies to the churches who have rejected the Creator's knowledge, of course with demonic assistance, by keeping immortal knowledge from the people. But as, you, as you've just read, there's hope, because the Creator says that He will reject them. Uh, that means the door to true understanding will be, and has been, finally opened to the common people as church authority and control crumbles. The astonishing, willing ignorance of religion is its own chief adversary and destroyer. Before looking further into true spiritual understanding, we should take note the demonically controlled religion's hierarchy isn't the only element keeping us from truth. There is also a personal component striving to keep us in spiritual ignorance as well, which is our own pride. Ephesians 6.12 admonishes us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers of darkness, which are spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly or hyper-dimensional places. That scripture alone is a massive clue to the transdimensional puppet masters pulling the strings of the religious leaders now and for the past millennia. Those adversarial powers use pride to manipulate their religious leaders and us to destroy or deny mankind true understanding. Pride, effectively wielded, is the ultimate weapon to achieve the same end as organized religion, making a battleground against mankind multi-level, considering pride is an incredible blinding element. While investigating this subject, we must note the predominant message the churches have been selling over the centuries has been getting into heaven versus hell. But of getting into heaven, which is another dimension, is so important, maybe we should notice the advice offered in Matthew 18, verse 3, where Yeshua said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the domain or kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but having raised children, not to mention having been a child once myself, has really made me wonder what is this wonderful quality little children possess. Obviously, little children are naturally foolish with little understanding and completely devoid of wisdom. In fact, they can be left alone, depending on their age, for long without getting in trouble and hurting themselves and or others. Again, little children have no real talents or useful abilities as compared to adults. And they understand little depending upon their ages, of how the adult world works. This is not to mention the fact they are naturally selfish and greedy, instinctively desiring everything that's bad for them. But there's still an overwhelming precious quality about them. That said, just what could this special quality possessed of little children we are to emulate possibly be? Well, the Messiah lays it out in the next verse, in Matthew 18, which, four, which is humility. Most of us have already come to this conclusion, but how many of us really understand this most special quality called humility? And why is it such an important component for entering the Creator's kingdom and family? After all, pride leads us to believe the most outrageous lies about ourselves as truth. Understanding the origin of pride shows it to literally be a lie. Pride is walking, talking, self-deception. Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 4 informs us, the proud man knows nothing. With that in mind, I would never have been able to see my own pride except for hearing a sermon on pride, where a minister convinced me the only way we have the ability to see our pride is to ask God to show it to us. Of course, I knew I had no pride, but I thought I would humor him anyway. 
I can personally attest to the truth of that advice being absolutely true after stepping out on faith and praying to see my pride, which I didn't believe I had. Instead, I discovered I was more like the king of pride. But there's more. It was only through being shown my pride I began to understand the flip side, which is humility, which is just as important to understand. The bizarre irony is our pride is always working to convince us we are already humble. But it's pride, which is given to us by the evil ones, that leads us in a life of denial considering our behavior and beliefs. In fact, it's the process of being humbled that reveals the greatest problem pride promotes, unteachability. You see, it's the same pride that has coerced us into believing we already have true understanding and truth. Of course, that's like Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, when we were little. Unfortunately, pride's lying delusion effectively blocks us from being open to growing in real truth. To this, our Creator speaks in Isaiah 57:15. He says there, For thus says the High and Lofty One who inhabits eternity, whose name is set apart, Quadesh, I dwell in the high and exclusive place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Wow, what a mouthful that is. Again, one of the chief ways our spiritual adversaries have blocked true understanding is by utilizing the pride they've instilled in us against us. But we must understand pride has helpers. The greatest of those is fear. Fear would most correctly be categorized as pride's right arm. In fact, it's fear religions most effectively utilize that to control by telling their followers if they don't follow church protocol or leave, they'll go to a place of eternal torture called hell. Ironically, even those not intimidated by the threat of hell are still controlled by their fear of being deceived to one degree or another. Most are completely unwilling to entertain even the slightest possibility their beliefs they've inherited from their religion and or parents could be wrong which is just another aspect of pride. The idea of already being in a state of deception is unthinkable, but it's just another natural characteristic of pride. True pride can never admit being wrong. In fact, Proverbs 16 verse 18 warns us of the consequence of letting pride control us. It says there, pride goes before destruction. Allowing pride to coerce us into rejecting true understanding will destroy us in the end. The very pride that deters, deters us from desiring the understanding that will save us is again confirmed in Hosea 4.6 where again it says, My people were destroyed for lack of knowledge. The context of that scripture applies to everyone to one degree or another, but it's primarily directed to the priests, i.e. the religious leaders. Earlier, we read the admonition by the Hebrew Messiah, be as little children. So let's examine some of those attitudes to understand what the Messiah was attempting to convey. The most obvious of those ad attributes of little children is they are humble enough to be teachable. They are like empty vessels yearning to be filled. If anyone has ever had children or been a teacher of young children, they understand just how exciting it is to see children's wonderful desire to learn. Does our Heavenly Father desire that quality in us any less? The second childlike attribute, very much connected to the first, is little children are not afraid of being deceived. 
They have a natural trust of their parents and adults in general. We adults, on the other hand, tend to get comfortable with our beliefs and develop a fear of change and willingness to admit being wrong, especially of having to change our behavior. The fear or deception, that fear or deception, effectively blocks any growth in understanding. Bottom line, though, would a loving father really allow his children to be deceived after commanding them to seek understanding? Would he really reward us with deception after obeying that directive to seek truth and grow in understanding? The third valuable attribute of little children is they aren't worried about being wrong. Unwillingness to be wrong is just another indicator of unadulterated pride. Again, the pride that bursts all kinds of strife, divisions, murder, and ultimately wars. That unwillingness to admit wrong is actively rooted in a desire for respect. But what is so amazingly ironic, the very act that brings respect, which is admitting wrong, is what our pride prompts us to resist. This brings to mind the anatomy of an argument. After all, why do people argue? Is it not rooted in a person's inherent need to be right? But why do people feel such a need to be right? Again, is it not to gain respect? If we're honest, we know that's true. Unfortunately, after losing an argument, that person is saying to him or herself about the winner, what a jerk, and he's so stupid. And what is not said is, wow, he or she is so smart. One thing's for sure, you have not gained respect by winning an argument. Surprisingly, the way to gain respect in an argument is to actually lose. Gracefully losing an argument leaves the one allowed to win, walking away thinking, wow, he's so smart or wise to listen to me. The graceful loser is the one that gains respect, not the one winning the argument. Rather than gaining the respect so desperately desired, as well as peace, our lying pride convinces us doing the very opposite by not admitting wrong is what brings respect. Consequently, all that's gained is strife and misery, but alas, no respect. One of the most profound signs of true humility is a willingness to admit being wrong, as in a good marriage. After noting these three qualities, can there be any doubt as to what Yeshua the Hebrew Messiah was attempting to teach his followers? Bottom line, being humble and teachable as little children is the attribute our Heavenly Father must find in us to work with us. Exercising humility or teachability is the only way we can ever comprehend and understand the truth of what the Creator is doing. It is His adversary, the devil, who doesn't want us to be open to that truth. Again, let's not forget Isaiah 57:15, where he said, I dwell in the high and holy place or set-apart place with him who has a contrite, contrite and humble spirit. After my own coming out of my box of pride, it saddens me to see so many insisting instead upon putting more nails in their boxes, i.e. coffins. They believe the box they are in is keeping deception and pride out, but in reality it's a satanic trick to keep deception in. Again, pride comes before destruction, and the box humanity lives in is a spiritual coffin, literally. The true kingdom of heaven can only be found by coming out of the religious box, or coffin, which has been my own personal experience. The bottom line concerning the Creator's true understanding, He only gives it to His chosen and humble people, as He personally determines. 
But of one thing we can be sure, the Creator does not give His precious understanding of immortal life to those who practice the things He hates. People flagrantly flaunt the worship or worship of pagan and false gods by presumptuously concluding they are His chosen, which is obviously not possible. Isaiah 66.2 and Psalm 111.10 shed clear perspective on this very issue. There it said, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite or humble spirit, and who trembles at my word or instructions. The fear that is respect and honor of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding all those who do his Torah or commandments. Well, again, that's instructions, his Torah instructions. As we see in later chapters, Christianity, for the most part, does not know who the Creator is, or His Son for that matter, let alone honor or obey Him. It's no wonder they have so little understanding of Bible Scripture. But before going on, this chapter would not be complete without taking a peek at the King or Queen of Pride in Job 41. Why it's called Leviathan is a mystery considering its clear descriptions. To understand we first notice what Revelation 12 tells us of a war in heaven against between Michael, that is the angel of Yahweh, and a dragon. And there it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He or it, the dragon, was cast to the earth, and his angels with him. Unfortunately, all the Bible-based churches virtually across the board dismiss the reference to the dragon as a metaphor. But as discussed in chapter 3, the one in the garden that deceived Eve was the very same little dragon, not a serpent as the translators inserted. Serpent or snake is what his prodigy was cursed to become, not what it was originally. At any rate, we find a very detailed blow-by-blow description of that very dragon in Job 41. Let's take a look. The chapter begins by pointing out its invincibility. But it goes on to mention in verse 3 how it could speak. Remember, the one in the garden spoke to Eve and Adam. Verse 5 goes on to compare it to a bird, letting us know it had wings. But then Ezekiel 28 not only tells us it was in the garden, but was also one of the angels that covers that the Creator's throne, that is, with its wings. Verse 14 mentions its terrible teeth, not snake fangs. And verse 18, it says, His sneezing flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning, that is, glowing red. And verse 20 tells us how smoke goes out of its nostrils. And verse 21 says, Its breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Honestly, we could not find a more perfect description of the proverbial fire-breathing dragon. But why no one acknowledges this dragon to be real is quite the enigma. At any rate, the chapter ends with this shocking enlightenment. On earth, there's nothing like it which is made without fear, that is, invincible. It beholds every high thing, and it is king or queen over all the children of Pride. There it is. Right there we find the origin of pride, the spirit of death that was given to Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, Eve and Adam opened that door 
That is, they gave the dragon permission or to imbue all people with its spirit of pride and death ever since. Remember, the Creator told them if they partook of that tree, they would die.